passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And for the rest of us, we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel this morning again. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 36. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to that. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 36. We've finished the prologue, if you will, of, of Samuel's um, uh, book. And uh, 1 Samuel is uh, this story about how God is going to fully establish the kingdom, uh, his reign through his chosen king. And as we work our way through 1 Samuel and then into 2 Samuel, Lord willing, we're going to see that God's plan is, is first initially fulfilled in the person of David, and yet it's not until Jesus comes that God finally and fully establishes his reign through his chosen king, and that is Jesus. But before we get into the story of kings, we actually are looking at this family, Elkanah and, and Hannah. They're a faithful couple. They've, they've been praying to God that, that God would give them a son. And yet, they're not just praying that God would do this for themselves. They're not even primarily praying that God would do this for themselves. They are praying for the people of God. They, they recognize as they look around them that the people of God have all gone astray. They're all going their own way. Very few of them are following the Lord. And this wife, Hannah, she, she's this bastion of faith amongst the faithlessness of her generation. She understands that God's people need someone, a leader, to bring them back to the Lord, their God. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she prays that, that God would use her, that God would give her a son who would do just that, that God would give her a son who would be used by God to bring the people of God back to himself. And as we saw, God doesn't forget his promises. He, he honors the prayer of this daughter of his, and this prayer is a prayer that is chiefly concerned with the glory of God among his people. And God gives Hannah a son, Samuel. And says, this is where he will serve you forever, Lord. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning as we are working our way through 1 Samuel. You'll notice that this passage is a story about two families. And as we look at these two families, we're going to notice that the family of Elkanah and the family of Eli, they're... they're completely polar opposites. They could not be more different. And as we work our way through this passage, we might wonder, well, what exactly is going on in this passage? It can be a little bit confusing with the back and forth that constantly takes place in this passage. We have the family of Eli who are corrupt and wicked, and God is going to judge them. And then we also have the family of Elkanah and Hannah and Samuel who are faithfully following the Lord. And to understand what this passage is doing, I think it's, it's important for us to recognize there's this overarching theme in 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 through 36, and that is a theme about God's glory. Maybe even more specifically, it is about not just God's glory, but it's about God's concern for his glory. That God is deeply concerned for his glory. That's what unites these two stories about drastically different families. It's all about the glory of God and how God is deeply concerned with his glory. Now that might sound a little odd to you. It might even sound a little bit narcissistic. After all, if I were to say that I am deeply concerned with my own glory, you would think Jordan is arrogant, that Jordan is an egomaniac. But is the same true of God? If God is deeply concerned with his own glory, is God narcissistic? Of course, the answer is, is no, for starters, because God is, is completely and, and wholly different than you and me, and that's a, that's a really, really good 
thing. God's concern for his glory isn't this form of arrogance. It's God recognizing that his glory is the greatest good in the entire universe. And if God is going to give to us the greatest good in the entire universe, then for him to magnify anything else is not only doing a disservice to us, it's also a form of idolatry from God if he were to magnify anything besides himself above his own glory. God is chiefly concerned with his glory because God knows more than anyone else just how glorious he is, just how good he is. And so to pursue the greatest good that he could ever give to humanity, God is deeply passionate about his own glory, about how our actions reflect upon him and who he is. And I think that's the, the key to understanding this passage and how it applies something that can seem like this abstract concept, the, the glory of God, and how it, it has massive implications for how we live our lives each and every moment of each and every day. So let's go ahead and jump into 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to roughly break this story into to four parts, and, and we're going to see how God is concerned for his glory, but also how God is at work in the midst of this dark and broken time in the nation of Israel's history. So let's uh, jump into God's word, but before we do that, would you pause and pray with me this morning? Let's pray. Father, uh, I am, I'm so grateful for your word. It is, um, it's, it's stunning to me, frankly, that, that these events that are from over 3,000 years ago are not only before us this morning, but, but that they, they teach us timeless truths about who you are and how we can live a life that is, that is honoring to you, that's pleasing to you. And so, God, we ask that you would send your spirit. We ask that that would be true of us this morning, that you would come and teach us, that we would sit underneath your word this morning God, that you would enable each and every one of us to respond to this passage with obedience, to, to cultivate within our own hearts a passion for your glory. God, we, we ask these things for our sake, that we would seek the greatest good in our lives, but, but even more so, God, we, we ask them for the sake of your fame and glory to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, our, our text picks up right where we left off last week. Hannah is in the tabernacle. She has just gotten done with this song, praising God, looking forward to this time where God is going to reverse the fortunes of his people by giving his people a king. And Hannah is offering her son up in the tabernacle, long at last fulfilling the vow that she has made to God to entrust her son Samuel into the service of the Lord. And then we get to verse 11. Then Elkanah, and we can assume Hannah as well, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So Elkanah's family returns home, and yet Samuel remains in the tabernacle, and yet the text is very explicit concerning the priorities of Samuel, of this little boy. He's, he's probably about four years old at this time, and yet even as a four-year-old, he is ministering before the Lord, to the Lord. In the midst of this broken, spiritually broken place, this faith of a four-year-old boy shines brightly. And it's in the midst of this spiritual brokenness of 1 Samuel that we actually turn as we jump into verses 12 through 17. We see that the, the corruption, the brokenness that is facing Israel at that time is found at the very heart of their worship. If you look at the, the family of the high priest, it's corrupt and far from God. Verses 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. 
All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat to the priest, excuse me, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No. You must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the son of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 12, right here at the very beginning, gets at the heart of the problem that's facing Eli's sons. Notice what the text says. This is the the issue from which all of their other problems stem. It is that they do not know the Lord. What an indictment of the people of God at this time. That the people who are supposed to be leading worship, the people who are entrusted to teach God's people the commandments of God, to teach God's people what God is like, God's character, they don't even know God. And we, we see that, that maybe they've been trained in the, the ritual of sacrifices. They might be able to, to speak the, the right words when the time comes, but at the end of the day, they have no knowledge of God. If you've been with us as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, they're a far cry from Hannah. As we've been looking at Hannah over the last several weeks, this woman of the covenant, this woman who is saturated with the promises that God has made to his people. When the text says, they did not know the Lord, the meaning is obvious. This God who has said, you will be my people and I will be your God. Is this abstract concept to them. This idea that God wants an actual relationship with his set-apart covenant people is something that's far from their minds. They they have no knowledge of what this God is actually like. Verses 13 through 16, the heart of this paragraph, show us some of the ways, I think it's just some of the ways, that this spiritual deadness in the family of the high priest works itself out in their actions. Verse 13, verse 14 tells us that they would take a large fork and they would shove it into the pot of boiling meat and whatever came up on the fork would be theirs. And we might say, okay, well, what's, what's really the big deal about this? And to, to understand what, what's so significant about this practice is we have to, to look back at the specific commandments of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy about how you were supposed to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And there were a number of different sacrifices, and, and the role of the priest in all of these different sacrifices was to know how to actually offer up those sacrifices. And in most sacrifices, with the exception of the whole burnt offering, which is called the whole burnt offering because you would burn all of it, or all of it would be burned on the, offering, uh, on the altar, most of these offerings, only a portion was offered up to the Lord, and the rest was split between the person who offered it up and to the priest for food. So what's the big deal? Well, the laws of sacrifices were very specific about different types of sacrifices meant that different parts of the animal would go to the priest. So if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, you'll see that in some sacrifices, these types of, or these parts of the animal were offered to the priest for food. And if you look at Leviticus chapter 7, you'll see that for different sacrifices, different parts of the animal were offered up to the priest for food. But that's not what we see the priest doing here, is it? No, instead, rather than keeping the commandments of God, they're taking whatever they can get. And they have this giant fork and they shove it into the pot of boiling meat. Further implication, if you look at the context of 1 Samuel chapter 2, later on, it's, I think in verse 29 or, or 30, you'll see the, the implication is that they're not just randomly sticking it in there, they're going for the best part. They're going for what they actually want and they're taking more than is actually their fair share, what God has actually commanded them to have. 
The commandments of God are secondary to the desires of these priests. But that's not the only issue. If 13 and 14 tell us of one problem, 15 and 16 tell us of maybe an even greater problem, an even graver issue, and that is before the animal was even offered on the altar to God, the priests, or maybe their lackeys, would come up to the person who was worshiping and say, I want you to give that meat to me raw. Apparently, they liked it better roasted as opposed to boiling it as God had commanded, and so they would take their portion before God even was given his portion on the altar. See, the core of the issue here, they're, they're exalting themselves above God. They're saying, God, I understand what your commandments are, but they don't matter to me. And so when these offerings were made, these sacrifices were made, they they decided to do whatever they could to get what they wanted. And to make matters worse, if the worshiper would say something like, hey, please, please don't do this. I want to offer my sacrifice in the right way so that way it's an actual act of worship to God, the priest would threaten them with violence. They'd shake them down. And, and maybe we, we think, well, this is, this is maybe the exception rather than the rule, but the text makes it very clear that this is happening all the time. This is the custom of the priests, if you look at verse 13. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites in verse 14. Worship that day centered on the tabernacle, centered on Shiloh. That's the place where you would encounter God. And yet, when you tried to go into God's presence, the people who are guarding the tabernacle are not there to lead you into the presence of God, lead you in worship, but instead they're going to extort you and steal what you're trying to offer up to God so that way they can meet their own ends. No wonder the passage ends with such strong words in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You look up this word contempt in the dictionary and you'll see a definition that gets at the heart of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Contempt, according to the dictionary, is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration or worthless. And when we look at the actions of the sons of Eli, that's exactly what they are saying through their actions about what God is actually like. That God is worth nothing. That God is is beneath their consideration. And I just want you to, uh, to imagine for a moment what it was like to be an Israelite in this day. You're trying to worship the Lord. Imagine that you're, you're Elkanah or you're, you're Hannah. Before you can even make your offering, even make this, this sacrifice of worship to the Lord, it's stolen from you from these corrupt priests. And you might ask, well, does anyone care? Is anyone going to step in and make this right? And we get to verse 17, and verse 17 makes it very, very clear that God sees. That God is is very aware. That God is going to intervene. Here we, we see a theme that's going to appear over and over and over again in 1 Samuel, and that is this. God sees and weighs the heart. God sees and weighs the heart. God sees their actions and he knows exactly what is happening here. In their actions, they are treating God and the worship of God and and ultimately the glory of God with contempt as something beneath their own consideration and yet God sees. But before we see how God responds to these priests, the narrative it suddenly switches from the family of Eli back to the family of Elkanah in verses 18 through 21. We go from this family of the spiritually dead to the family of these faithful worshipers. Consider starting in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. 
And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited, visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So while the, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are showing this disdain through their actions for God. Little Samuel is dressed in a linen ephod. This is the clothing of a priest. He's, he's serving as a priest. And he continues to faithfully minister before the Lord. Now, not everything and everyone in Shiloh is corrupt. There's this glimmer of light in the darkness of Eli's family. And in the midst of that context, we see that Samuel is following in the path of faithfulness that's been laid out by his mom and dad, by, by Elkanah and Hannah. Verse 19 tells us that they continue to make their yearly trip to Shiloh. Year after year, they would go before the Lord to worship. And now, they don't only just go to worship, they also go to, to, see, to see Samuel, the son that they offered up. And Elkanah and, their, and his family, they continue this journey to Shiloh for worship. And apparently, during that time, Elkanah would receive this blessing from Eli. And Eli would bless this family for their faithfulness, asking that God would intervene and give them, a chil- uh, give them more children as a reward for their obedience. And that's exactly what we see God do. Verse 21 tells us that God visited Hannah. This word visited is this powerful word in the Old Testament. It describes the ways that God intervenes on behalf of his people, intervenes into their lives to accomplish his plans, to accomplish his purposes for them. And Hannah bears more children. She, she has five total. But notice how this paragraph ends. It again ends with Samuel. It tells us that Samuel continues to grow in the presence of God at Shiloh. And I think it's, it's worth pausing here after we've, we've made our first jump from, from the wicked family of, of Eli to the faithful family of Elkanah and just say, well, what exactly is, is this passage doing? What is this narrative doing? What is God doing by, by contrasting these two families? And I think as you look at this contrast, we can learn from the faithfulness of Elkanah's family that this passage is making very, very clear that God delights in the obedience of his people. God delights when his people respond to him with obedience. God shows his delight for the family of Elkanah when he visits Hannah. But even more so, just notice how this language drips with approval. Especially when we compare it to what we just read. Verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great because they showed contempt for the Lord and his offerings. God delights in the obedience of his people. You see, so far as we work our way through this passage, we, sees that, we see that God sees the heart, he, he weighs the heart, and that's terrifying news for people like Hophni and Phinehas. But it is incredibly good news for people like Hannah, for people like Elkanah, that God delights in the obedience of his people text shifts back to the family of Eli. You see what happens in verse, after verse 17. What, what's going to happen to this family that shows such contempt for God? They have no concern for the glory of God. Pick up in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? 
For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. As we saw in verse 14, the actions of Eli's sons, they're, they're well known throughout the entire land. And I'm, I'm stuck reading this, asking, why on earth did it take Eli so long to address this issue with his sons? We learn later on in 1 Samuel that he's over 90 years old by now. What took him so long to address this issue with his sons. The text isn't clear. We, we don't ultimately know. All we see is that word continues to reach Eli about all of the despicable things that his sons are doing, even though he hasn't seen it significant enough to address up until this point. Once he's 90 or over, and he realizes he has to say something or should say something to his sons, but if you look at what he says to his sons, I'll be honest, to me, it leaves a whole lot to be desired. As you look at the words to his sons, his, his rebuke is, is half-hearted. He hears that his sons are abusing these sacrifices. He, he hears how they're sleeping with the female servants in the tabernacle, in the presence of God. And all he says is basically, boys, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Because, you, you know, you're not sinning against other people. You're sinning against God here. And that's basically where he leaves it. Just consider the, the significance of, of what he's saying here. He's, he's saying, you don't have anyone to step in and intercede for you. The, the, the person you're sinning against, the injured party, is God himself. He's not going to be able to step in as an impartial third party. You're heaping judgment upon your lives. And then Eli actually says that, you know what, you're, you're doing something even worse than just sinning against God. The way you're sinning against God is, is by showing contempt for the very sacrifices, the very offerings that God has given to his people as a way to deal with sin. And so he says, boys, I don't know how you're, you think you're going to get out of this situation. And the answer we see from Hophni and Phinehas is, is maybe even more chilling than the predicament that they are in. Verse 25, second half again, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In essence, what they say to their dad is, we don't really care. We don't really care what God thinks. What callous hearts. What this, this is a terrifying situation. What, what's facing them, they're, they're, they're shown the seriousness of their situation before God and they ignore every opportunity they have to repent, to, to turn around. And you read that and you might actually see, oh, well, what about that last phrase? It says that they couldn't repent because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And if I'm reading that, then well, maybe that's, that's actually more concerning to me than the fact that they chose not to repent. And the last half of verse 25 is a bit of an eye-opener. The fact that it is indeed God's will to put them to death. But I think to understand the significance or, or what exactly is being said here, we, we have to go to other passages of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 3 is an immensely helpful passage for me as I consider what exactly is happening in this passage. Hebrews 3, I'm going to look at verses 12 through 15. Let's go ahead and, and read this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened with the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So Hebrews 3 is this call to persevere. It says, I want you to endure in the faith. And part of this call to persevere is the importance of being in community with other Christians who are going to exhort you. They are going to encourage you in the faith. And we see that this encouragement is supposed to happen every day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, what what Hebrews is reminding us of is the importance for us to repent right now. When we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling us to repent, we should not wait until tomorrow, but we should respond right now. If we put it off until later, then we are hardening our hearts. Our hearts are getting hardened by the deceitfulness of sin when we do not respond to the Spirit's conviction right now. And the more that we put off repentance, the more that we put off obedience, the more that we harden our hearts, the more callous that we become to the way of God, and the more difficult it will become for us to repent in the future. And so Hebrews 3 ends with today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Back to Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas have been doing this for a long time. They have stubbornly refused to repent of their actions. Remember, they're priests. They they would have known better. And by the time we pick up on the story, their hearts are so hard, their hearts are are so calloused that they're treating the very offerings that God has given to his people so that they can enter into his presence as, as a way that they can get ahead. They're showing disdain for God. Much like we see in the time of the Exodus, there's this mutual hardening God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. The only thing that is going to save Hophni and Phinehas is an intervention from God. And yet they have persistently chosen to ignore the conviction of God that their hearts are so callous, so hard, that they can't respond. And God chooses not to intervene in their lives. And he purposes to put them to death. What a sobering statement. What a challenging statement. One that we have to take to heart in our own lives. Just like we saw in in Hebrews 3, that we have to be on guard against any sort of of unbelieving heart. We have to surround ourselves with other Christians on a regular basis who are going to encourage us to to keep us away from the deceitfulness of sin that leads to a hard heart. That's why it's so important to regularly gather with God's people in worship. It's because it keeps our hearts soft to the things of God. And in all of this, If we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling us to repent, do it. Choose obedience today. Because as we look at Hophni and we look at Phineas, we are reminded that if, if God calls us to repent today, don't wait until tomorrow. Don't put it off until 
tomorrow. Beware of hardening your heart against the conviction of the Spirit because if you continue to do it over and over and over, choosing the way of disobedience rather than obedience, you're going to find yourself at a place where you might not be able to repent and you'll be so hardened against the way of God, the things of God, that just like Hophni and just like Phineas, only judgment awaits. And so if you hear the conviction of the Spirit calling you to repent today. Don't wait until tomorrow. We see from Hophni and Phidias, they don't choose that path. A terrifying end awaits them for their willful rebellion against God. Again, notice the contrast in verse 25 with verse 26. We have this willful rebellion, and, and it's the will of the Lord to put Hophni and Phinehas to death. And then we have Samuel in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We'll touch on this later, but I, I just want you to consider what exactly is God doing with the contrast here in verse 25 and verse 26. Verse 25, it is the will of the Lord to put them to death. Verse 26, we have Samuel is growing in the favor of the Lord. It's, it's a contrast between the two paths that are before us, but it's, it's doing, God's doing something more. He's, he's communicating something more to us in the contrast between 25 and 26. We'll, we'll come back to it here at the end of our passage. Passage ends with this lengthy description of the judgment that is awaiting the house of Eli, verses 27 and 28. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So God sends this prophet to go talk to Eli the high priest. And just take a step back. It's probably an indication of the spiritual state of Eli's family, that the person who is able to enter into the presence of God, the high priest, has to receive God's word from a prophet. This prophet comes and reminds Eli of all the things that God has done for him, all the ways that God has blessed his family since the time of the Exodus. God chose his family as a special part of of his plan. And Eli is, is showing contempt himself by how he is acting. Verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? God is saying, after all I've given to you, all the ways I've blessed you. You are showing contempt, a, a scorn toward me by honoring your sons more than me. Eli's actions show scorn for the Lord and his offerings and his glory because, as the prophet puts it, he honors his sons above God. Now, Eli probably never would have said it, but his actions declare that his sons are of greater value and honor in his eyes than the very God, the very king of all creation. No wonder judgment is coming for this family of spiritually bankrupt priests. That's what's described in the rest of this passage. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of my father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. God pronounces judgment upon Eli's family because they show disdain for the Lord. But God's not done. The rest of this passage is not just judgment, but it's also a promise for the people of God. Pick up in verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come and implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Verse 36, if you know, prayer. And chapter 2, verse 5. The people who had much to eat are now hungry. God is fulfilling his promises. You see, not only is God going to remove Eli's family from before his presence, but he's going to install a faithful line of priests who will serve him. As we read the Old Testament narrative, we see that this is partially fulfilled by the time of First Kings. Now, what can we learn from this sobering judgment that God pronounces on the family of Eli? There's a lesson to be learned here as we look at how Eli is, is judged as harshly as his sons are by his own actions. As he honors his sons above God, we see that God's glory must be our highest concern. Our lives have to be centered on the glory of God as our chief concern. Because otherwise, if we look at the story of Eli... We see that we're showing contempt when we honor things higher than God himself. We're not sure what Eli's highest concern is. It could be this misguided love for his sons where he refuses to rebuke them. It it could be because it seems like he's benefiting from the actions of his sons. Verse 29 says that he's fattening himself himself as well on what his sons are doing. It it could be this paralyzing fear of, of conflict that means he's not going to correct his sons. We don't, we don't know, but it's clear that it's not the glory of God. And God's rebuke here for Eli shows us, reminds us that we have to take seriously the glory of God, even as God himself takes his glory seriously. And our actions, or our inaction, makes a statement about our view on the importance of God's glory. How we live our lives makes a statement about how we think God responds when we honor Him or when we choose not to honor Him. That's actually one of the essential truths of this passage. As we come to an end so far in our time in in 1 Samuel, we've seen that the stories so far in 1 Samuel have really operated on two planes. There's the, what I am referring to as like the boots on the ground, what we can learn specifically from specific examples, immediate circumstances, immediate events, like what we learned from Hannah. She's crying out to God in her affliction, but we also see that the story is operating on a different plane. That God's doing something bigger and, and, and better for his people. Like God's, God's preparing his nation for how he's going to save them through a king who's going to lead them back to him. That's what we see in this morning's passage as well. We, we look at the, the interwoven story of Elkanah's family and Eli's family, and it's clear, you know, there's two paths before us. When it comes to the glory of God, we can be like Elkanah, his family, Samuel. Notice just every single reference in this passage to the family of Elkanah describes their faithfulness 
their commitment to the Lord and to his glory. So we look in verse 11, and the boy was ministering to the Lord. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 19, his mother used to make a robe for him and take it to him every year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Verse 21, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Every single reference to this family shows how committed they are to following the Lord of serving him. They are deeply concerned with God and his glory. And there's a willingness to do anything, even the costly things, so that they can make much of the king of glory. What have we followed that path? Of course, there's another path before us. And we would do well to heed the warning of Eli and his family. If every single passage in, in this, or every single verse in this passage uh, about Elkanah's family shows us how faithful they are, it's like the exact opposite for the family of Eli. Verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Verse 29, why then, this is to Eli, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? You see, our passage is making something very clear to us, and that is this, that my actions make a value statement about the glory of God. For better or worse, my actions, the way I live my life, make a value statement about the glory of God. When I live a life that is indifferent to God and to obedience and to repentance, and I actually make the costly, I, I don't want to make that costly decision of following him, if I'm making a statement about his glory, I'm making a statement of, of how glorious God actually is. When I am willing to live in sin, I'm making a statement about what I think about God and his glory. When I prioritize other things in my life above God, above gathering with his people, above his mission that he has entrusted to his church, I am making a statement about what I think is more glorious than God. And yet, when I go down that hard path of obedience... And, and repentance, and when I willingly give up my wants and my preferences, when I sacrificially give up my time and my resources, when I give up my dreams for my life, when I am willing to go give up control of God and say, give up control to God and say, you know, God, whatever you want of me, wherever you want me to go, you're making a beautiful statement about how infinitely glorious God is. My actions make a value statement about God's glory, for better or worse. And as we've seen, God is concerned with his glory. That's part of the gospel. One of the reasons why God saves humanity is because he deeply loves his image bearers, but it's also because He's concerned with his glory. The Bible makes it very clear that God works to save people for the sake of his name. Just look at Ezekiel 20, Isaiah 48. More passages. God is concerned with his glory and so he sends his son to save people from the darkness that surrounds them, that we are trapped in. In. I mentioned that this passage operates on two planes. We have the, the boots on the ground plane of, of you know, my, my, my actions make a value statement about God and his glory, but, but God's doing something else here. If you look at, at verse 25 and 26, and verse 25, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In verse 26, we have God s describing how, how Samuel is growing up in the favor of the Lord. We see another theme from this passage, that God will continue to work for his glory 
even in the darkest times. God continues to work for his glory even in the darkest times. Isn't that what he's doing in 1 Samuel chapter 2? In this dark time in Israel's past, the leaders of Israel who are supposed to lead the people into the presence of God, leading, him, leading the people to worship him, they're spiritually dead. The nation is in desperate need for revival. They're in need of repentance. They're in need of new leaders. And, and God says, you know what, as I'm, I'm, I'm bringing judgment upon these, I'm raising up a four-year-old that I will use to bring my people back to me. Isn't that what God does? That God's always at work for his glory, even in the darkest times? Isn't that what the gospel reveals to us? You look at the the language of verse 26 and how it, it describes Samuel growing up. Now the boy continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then you look at the beginning of Jesus' life in the gospel of Luke and it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see what Luke's doing? He's he's coming back to to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and saying, you know what? Just as God was raising up a young boy in the midst of this dark generation who was going to bring the people of God back to himself, God's doing the exact same thing with Jesus. That in the midst of this darkness, God's working for his glory. And that glory is ultimately found in Jesus. What if we were a people, because of the gospel, who resolved with our lives to be a people who seek the glory of God in every circumstance, in every situation, that every action we would see as an opportunity to make a statement about God and his glory. And we would do it because of the gospel. Because even in the darkness, God reached down to save people like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you that there is mercy for us, for me, when I don't live a life concerned with your glory. Thank you that you are at work in the midst of darkness for the sake of your glory and for the good of your people. God, we ask that you would help us this morning through the power of your spirit to respond to this passage with obedience, to be a people who are deeply concerned, radically concerned with you and your glory and live lives that reflect beautifully upon you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.